Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Peter the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, And taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away and were not a little comforting. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assus, he took him on board, or we took him on board, and went to Middleane. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. The word of the Lord. Grass withers, flowers fade, people come and go, but the word of our God lasts forever. By his spirit, may his word be preached to you. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you for your patience and kindness with us. We thank you for your word and ask that you use it to give us life. Please speak through me by your grace, for I am a sinner saved only by your grace. Please clothe us with Christ every day. Protect this congregation from the virus sweeping across our county and state and country. Lord, be with our people in the doctor's offices and hospitals and labs Be with those in our community who shelve our stores and check out our food and are keeping this town running in the midst of a shutdown. And please give our bodies health and allow our hearts to be full of your love and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just read a story about a guy who fell asleep in a sermon. 
He fell out of a window and died and was then raised to life. What are we going to do about that? Well, on a surface level, the message is very clear. Don't fall asleep in sermons. It's dangerous. Get an extra cup of coffee if you're feeling drowsy. But on a deeper level, this passage is about stories and the power of stories. The raising of Eutychus is meant to grab our attention, to draw us in. We're going to see how the climax of this story about a guy falling out of a window can point us to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ in our own life, in our own personal story. Now, how is that possible? Madeline Langle, who was an author, once said that all of life is a story. Are there boring parts of our story? Sure. In my opinion, there are boring parts of Acts 20. (laughs) But we'll also realize that this particular narrative informs how we live, even in the midst of a virus, even in the midst of our current trials, because Paul's story and Eutychus' story and our story all share something in common. They are part of God's grand narrative. Over the past few days, I've been reading this little book called Epic by John Eldridge, and it's a great coronavirus read because it's about 90 pages in large print. And in it, he talks about God as the grand storyteller. And for the next few minutes, I want us to consider the truth that God is weaving every circumstance of our life, every laugh, every tear, every moment of excitement and boredom, every time we fall out of a window into a tapestry that is incomprehensibly beautiful. The history of God is a history of his church, him acting through it to make all things new. And by being part of the church, by remaining and believing in Jesus Christ, you are actually joining in to God's story. You're actively participating, as Bradley just said, in that story. Now, this passage highlights three truths about God's story. The first is that God's story brings life. The second is that God's story brings comfort. And the third is that God's story brings community. So God's story brings life, comfort, and community. Let's start by seeing how God's story brings life. Dan and I were watching the final Harry Potter movie on TV the other night, and we kept saying things like, this looks just like the lamp scene from Aladdin, or this battle looks exactly like a lightsaber battle from Star Wars. Or, this is basically the plot of Lord of the Rings. And that guy, that professor, looks exactly like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Now, you can't fault the movie makers for this. Uh, All our great epics tend to blend together. That's all Dane and I were noticing. There's nothing new under the sun. So, when someone is creative and original as J.K. Rowling sets out to write the Harry Potter stories, there are aspects of those stories that reflect the best stories ever told. Now, if you're a Christian, you already know the best story ever told. All heroes, however dimly, reflect the one true hero we have in Jesus Christ. And like the great stories of all t- our time kind of blending together, Acts 20 also contains several themes and events that take place in other parts of Scripture. There's a familiarity to Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. 
Like Yogi Berra said, it's like deja vu, but all over again. We're going to study those instances where this passage mirrors other parts of Scripture. And look at how Luke uses those to highlight God's reoccurring story. Let's start with the most iconic plot point in this passage, the raising of Eutychus from the dead. This is, in fact, the eighth time in the Bible that a prophet of God has raised someone from the dead. It's the fifth time a child has been raised from the dead. Did you notice in verse 10 how it said, it says that Paul bent over Eutychus, taking him in his arms. This is supposed to remind us about Elijah and Elisha. Those two men were prophets in Israel. Their stories are told in 1 and 2 Kings. And guess what? Both Elijah and Elisha raised boys from the dead. Elijah raised a widow's son. Elisha raised the son of this elderly couple who'd experienced this miraculous birth. And uh, God raised these boys from the dead when the prophets bent over their bodies, praying intensely for them that God would rescue them and bring them back to life. So Paul certainly has this in mind when he bends over and kind of lunges over Eutychus's body, confident that God would raise Eutychus from the dead. Now, did you notice the setting of the story? Verse 8 says that Eutychus fell out of the upper room. That setting of the upper room is familiar to us. We know the upper room is where Jesus spent his last Passover meal with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about that in a moment. But guess what? This is the second time in Acts that someone's been raised from the uh, dead in an upper room. In Acts 9, this good woman named Dorcas passes away in the upper room of a house, and Peter goes upstairs and heals her, brings her back to life. And guess where Elijah and Elisha raised the boys from dead in their stories? In both instances, the authors of those miracle stories point out that the boys were raised from dead to life in upper rooms. So the upper room is a major theme. The upper room is this deja vu moment. Jesus raises two children from the dead in Luke's gospel account. One is a son of a widow. The other is a daughter of a man named Jairus. And we're told that Jesus raised a widow's son because he had compassion on her. He saw her weeping and he went up and he touched the casket of her son and said, young man, arise. And he did. And then he went to Jairus' house where his daughter had died and everyone in there was weeping. And he said, don't cry. She's only asleep. And they mocked him. They thought he was out of his mind. But then he told the child to awake. And it was as if she had been sleeping. That's another deja vu moment. Paul may have had Jesus' words in mind when he tells people that Eutychus still has life within him. We've heard the story before. So why the story of Eutychus? Why the eighth time? Why do we have yet another time about a boy being raised from the dead? I think it's because God is consistent. He's perfectly consistent. The same God who was with Elijah and Elisha, is with Peter and Paul. It's a blessed truth that points to the resurrection of all Christians. Though we will die, we will also live. Though our heart quits beating, though our lungs quit breathing, 
there will still be life to come. Nothing has changed about God. God had power over death in the past. He has power over death now. And he'll have power over my future death. Deja vu moments are usually alarming. They kind of freak us out. Right, So if we're at Starbucks and I'm standing there talking to the barista in the Boston Bruins beanie and he's telling me he's out of chocolate cake pops, I'm like, oh my goodness, I've been here before. And uh, yeah, they, they kind of alarm us. Their deja vu moments are completely random and don't make sense at all. But when we are raised from the dead, when God has power over our death and gives us life, that deja vu moment is going to feel like the most natural thing in the world. We are going to say, of course God has power over death. Of course I was destined to eternity. Of course God has the power to redeem the world. It is going to bring us comfort. And that brings us to our second point, that God's story brings us comfort. You have to love Luke's understatement in verse 12. They took the youth, that's Eutychus, away alive, and we're not a little comforted. Do you think? You know, before communion, we often read from this thing called the Heidelberg Catechism that talks about comfort. It asks us, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That truth is true for Eutychus, it's true for Paul, and it's true for us. Christian, your only comfort in this life is that you are part of God's story. Now, you may be skeptical of that claim, and I wouldn't blame you. I've never seen a dead person raised to life. I've never seen a miracle of those proportions. But when we cast this story aside as a simple fairy tale, For a simpler time, we miss the greatest comfort of all. That God is always with us. We miss the underlying truth that God comforts us through our whole life. In the big and the small. In every moment. The good, the bad, the ugly. And everything in between. Now this isn't obvious at first. If you look closely at verses 1 through 16 you're going to notice that there's one key character that seems to be missing, and that's God himself. You're not going to find the following words in this section. God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, or Spirit. Now, isn't that interesting? And that brings us to the question, where is God in this story? And you might be wondering, where is God in my story? Why does the Bible have eight stories about someone being raised from the dead but I can't even know if God exists. We've all heard people say about this coronavirus as it sweeps across the globe, sweeps across our country. Where is God in all of this? Why isn't he doing anything? 
Well, Luke gives us a couple hints that God is in this story in verses 1 through 16. And those same hints tell us that God is always present. In verse 1, we read that Paul encouraged the disciples in Ephesus. In verse 2, we see that Paul encourages the Christians throughout the region of Macedonia. In verse 7, it says that Paul talked with the Christians gathered in Troas. And that word for talk means he preached to them. And our final hint comes in verse 16 when it says that Paul sailed past Ephesus because he wanted to get to Jerusalem so he could be there on the day of Pentecost. So we got encouragement, encouragement, preaching, and Pentecost. What do those things have in common? Well, do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? That's seven weeks from Easter Sunday, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit descended on the disciples assembled in the upper room in Jerusalem, and Christ's Spirit descended on them in a way that caused them to speak in tongues, described as fire, and gave them, gave them the authority to form the church and go out and proclaim the gospel message to the world. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples, those same guys assembled in the upper room, that he was going to die. He told them that he was leaving them. But he said that he would send the Holy Spirit that would be with them forever. And what did Jesus call the Holy Spirit? He called the Holy Spirit the helper, the comforter, the encourager. When Paul encourages the Christians in Greece and Macedonia, God himself is encouraging those Christians through Paul. Do we believe that Paul encourages people because he's just a nice guy? No, Paul is not a nice guy. Paul used to persecute Christians. Paul used to take Christians and drag them to jail and leave them to be killed. Paul, on his own, was a terrible person. So when we see Paul encouraging people, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Same thing with raising Eutychus from the dead. The Spirit of God, not Paul, is the author of life. So where is God in the midst of this virus? Well, the best missionaries of our time will tell us that God is with his church. If you remain and believe in Jesus Christ, God is with you right now, wherever you are. He's in the acts of mercy, and he's in the hope that can't be taken away from us. God is always present. He is changing our hearts, changing the way we respond to the virus. This passage is crucial for our understanding of how God works. It's crucial for understanding why we face any trial, why we struggle with sin, why we may have a mental illness. God has chosen the long road through his people, not the easy fix. Our stories are incorporated into God's story through the behind-the-scenes work of the Holy Spirit. He's chosen to comfort his people through his people. Theologian Catherine Tanner notes that God is as much at work in the ordinary run of things as in the unusual happenings. And that's the greatest gift of all. It's a gift of a life that is exciting, that is monumental, 
that doesn't have to be exciting or monumental in any way, shape, or form. You can just be plodding along. It is a life of incremental change, of failure, of asking for forgiveness and getting up in the morning and having a cup of coffee and trying it all over again because God's miracles change the human heart. I just said that I've never witnessed a dead person being raised from the dead, but that's not true. I lied. I have seen God raise people from the dead because that is my story. The fact that I'm up here preaching from the Bible and I'm behind a podium has nothing to do with me. It's a complete joke if not for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I get up here and I read from Scripture and I talk about it and I smile, but that doesn't reflect who I am. It reflects on who the Holy Spirit is inside of my heart, changing it moment by moment, forgiving a sinner, forgiving him grace. I see the miracle of God's grace in the boring circumstances every day. I see dead people raise their life every day. I see it in our youth group. I see it in my wife, Dana. I see it in my mom and dad and brother and sister. And I see it in you. We experience change together in community. And that brings us to our final point, that God's story brings community. Again, we recognize God's story by the instances in Acts 20 that are found in other parts of Scripture. There's another one of those in verse 6 where it's implied that the travelers celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this feast finds its origins from when the Israelites fled slavery from Egypt. They had to flee Egypt so quickly they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread, hence the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And every time this feast was celebrated, Jews would remind each other that God saved them after 400 years of slavery. After 400 years of slavery, many had given up hope. But God heard them, God understood them, and God delivered his people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminded Paul that even though he was not personally there, God rescued his ancestors in the Exodus. That is God's story, and he continues to be part of that story as he travels to Troas to save Eutychus. And our Jewish neighbors will actually celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread starting this week. Now, this connects with verse 7, where we see the Christians of Troas gather together on the first day of the week. We're seeing that Christians are starting to celebrate uh, with each other and worship with each other on Sundays for the same reasons why the Jews would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to remember God's story specifically to remember and celebrate the empty tomb. Every Sunday reminds us that we're in a new chapter of God's narrative, the beginning of the new kingdom of God with King Jesus of the resurrection. Jesus himself called us to remember him in our church gatherings when he instituted the Lord's Supper. That's why we see the people of Troas breaking bread together. It means they're taking part in the Lord's Supper. They are obeying the words of Jesus. These are the same words of Jesus that Bradley recites when we gather together on Sundays. Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover feast with you before I die. For I tell you that I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup 
And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take the Lord's Supper together every Sunday, we're reminding ourselves of Christ's ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Him for us. Life for death. Righteousness for sin. We are pointing to that incredible work on the cross. Now, we can't take the Lord's Supper this Sunday. We can't take the Lord's Supper together in the midst of this coronavirus because we're in self-isolation. But I've actually been in this situation before. My first appointment in the Army lasted exactly 365 days. So for 52 weeks, I didn't attend a church service. I didn't take the Lord's Supper for an entire year. And I remember the first Sunday I was back in the States, we went to our church in El Paso, Texas, and our pastor would fence the table just like Bradley. It was all about God's grace. It was all about the Holy Spirit feeding our faith through the bread and wine. And I remember taking that bread and wine and kneeling down and tears just started coming down my face because that's when I realized I was finally home. That's when I realized that I could once again reenact the truth that my life is in Christ, that Christ's story has actually enveloped my story. It is going to be incredible when we gather together again to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are going to party. (laughs) But until then, until then, we need to find meaning in the distance. Let the separation from the table remind you of your current separation from the new heaven and new earth. Let it remind you of the separation that you can't see God face to face right now. Because just as certainly as we're going to come back in this room and celebrate the Lord's Supper, Christ is going to return to this earth to share in the great meal with us when he inaugurates the new heaven and new earth, his kingdom. Until then, God's story provides us with community. Now in verse 7, we see that worship is not limited to the Lord's Supper. It also includes preaching. Preaching is a reminder of the truth of the gospel. Paul's sermon isn't recorded, but apparently it wasn't the most entertaining sermon in the world because it couldn't keep Eutychus awake. But we don't listen to sermons to be entertained. We gather together to hear sermons because we need to to be reminded of this simple truth, that we love our neighbor as ourselves because we love Jesus. And we love Jesus because Jesus loved us First, that's the final thing Acts 20 tells us about Christian community. Christianity is not only the Lord's Supper. It's not only gathering together on Sundays. It's also friendship. In verse 11, we read that after Eutychus is healed, Paul goes back upstairs to break bread and converse with the church until daybreak. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he like went back and had Lord's Supper again, and he went back and started preaching again? Probably not. Probably means he went up for a late night dinner and good conversation with his friends and the Lord. Our bonds in Christ make us a family. They make us closer than mere friends who share hobbies and interests. That's why we pass a peace to each other after 
confession. It's reminding someone, it's reminding ourselves saying, I love you because God loves me. I understand your story because it's my story. Because we are enveloped under God's story. We've all lived and died to Christ. Our bonds in Christ make us a family. They make us friends. Now, what are the implications of this? It means we can't get angry or get frustrated or give up on other people. There's only two kinds of people we knew. We know those who are lost and those who are found. If someone is lost, how can you get ultimately frustrated at them? They have not been found by God yet. If God had not found you, you would be in their exact situation. And if someone has been found, you can't get frustrated at them either. Have you sinned since you came to Christ? Well, then you understand why they're sinning. You understand their story. And so in a world of lost and found people, we don't give up on anybody. We can't become judges over them without judging ourselves. God's story provides us a community of mutual forgiveness. Now, we just talked about how God works through his spirit in the regular rhythms of life. And it's the same thing for community. When we befriend each other, when we look past our differences and offer fellowship, God himself befriends us. God moves and works and speaks through his people, proclaiming the message of the gospel. If God wanted to, he could flip a switch. The switch would say Newton Wellesley. He could flip that switch and all Newton Wellesley would be saved. He could flip another switch and the coronavirus would be over. There would be no more self-isolation, no more death. He doesn't flip switches. He changes hearts through the community found in the body of Christ. He advances his kingdom through us. Next week is Easter, but we don't have to wait until then to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That resurrection is the reality for us in every waking moment we share together. God's story is our story on Palm Sunday today, next week on Easter Sunday, and every other day of the year. And so I'll conclude by begging you to enter into God's story. This requires humility. It means praying to God and saying, God, I have made a mess of my life. I live in my own messy, selfish story. Let me be found in your grand narrative. Make your story part of my story. Let every waking moment point back to the crucifixion when Jesus took my sin and my eternal death and the resurrection, when Jesus buried my sin and eternal death and gave me life. I pray that your story gets enveloped into God's story. I pray that his story brings you comfort and community in this truth, that even when we die, life will still be in us. Let's pray.